Good morning. Good morning. Um, how many people are sitting uh, for the first time a one-day retreat at our Zen Center? Great. Welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> I um, want to welcome you into uh, this space and this practice and our exploration together. Um, having you guys here and um, when people filled out the practice period form, there were all of these uh, new names for me. And I was super excited about it. And um, I, the topic of karma keeps making me think about plants and trees. And um, so the image that just came to mind is the excitement I have when I'm, I have my house plants that I watch every day and hear and see and listen to what they're doing. And um, there's, when there's like these new buds, these new sprouts that come up, I, I have this kind of thrill in my body. So, um, so thank you for joining this tree <laughs> of Brooklyn Zen Center practice today. So we are starting the practice period. We're, I think we're starting it a little earlier than we usually do. We got like right into it, yeah, Danielle? So we got our practice period ceremony and it's September 15th and we're already digging into our first uh, deep setting, t sitting together and settling in. And um, I'm grateful for that. I could use the support. And um, I think we have so much to um, feel into and to study and to liberate that to get started a little earlier, I think, is a, a wonderful thing. So, um, as most of you know, this practice period we're focusing on the topic of karma and rebirth. And I, I, I laugh at myself because um, when we were trying to decide what are we going to talk about, and I don't know, Greg, I think you mentioned it, or I don't know, I don't know how the idea came up, but the idea of karma came up. And I thought, great, I know all about karma. This is good. <laughs> this is what we do. This is my job as a therapist. We're always just looking at karmic conditioning. This will be easy. And then um, I recommitted uh, re re to my um, study of it. And I um, also, as I did that, and then as we began to talk about it here, I think we talked about it in a second Saturday, and um, uh, we started to open up the idea of talking about karma. And then I realized there is so much to this topic and so much to the word itself. So um, I feel as if I, I feel more humble. I feel like I need to be more careful and that um, this is a process by which we are going to kind of unpack something in a more explicit way that underlies the whole Buddhist practice. It's like the architecture underneath all of the teachings. There, we're always referring back to karma, but we don't necessarily talk about what is karma and what do we mean by it. And the other thing I, I realized pretty quickly on is um, to think about how harmful this word has been, how harmful the word can be used as. And so it comes out of a very different um, time and a very different cosmology than we live in right now. And um, it has been um, 
misunderstood and also used. It's been used to justify oppressive social structures. It has been conflated with this idea of fate so that there's this predetermined uh, destiny or punishment that gets doled out based on an action. It has been used to justify a certain kind of suffering or a passivity in the face of suffering. Or this kind of uh, moralistic judgmental force in the world. So like anything, um, a word or a teaching can be used for harm or for good. And so I feel a sensitivity to um, being very careful for myself and seeing if we can be careful together as we unpack this. I also um, appreciate the process by which the wisdom of this teaching arises uh, in community. So we were, um, some of you have, were at Watershed this summer, and we unpacked over the course of a week a teaching, this Endokai, a poem. And um, when I first, on my own, studied this and looked at it, I had, based on my own karmic conditioning, uh, certain ideas or concepts or ways I thought about it. And then through this course of sitting together, studying together, confronting and challenging each other, um, the jewel of that teaching came alive. And I think this is the way it happens. And um, so for me, uh, as I sat down and started to study karma in preparation for this talk, uh, it was so fun because, you know, I, I thought this is simple and then I'd read this and then I'd read this and then I'd read that. I'm like, holy moly, there's this and there's this. And then I started trying to write it down and organize it. And um, I started getting anxious. <laughs> How the hell am I going to talk about this? You know, I'm confused. And I don't know. I, I really can't figure this out on my own. And, that, and, and as I, um, questions came up, and then I tried to scramble for ground, you know, and there wasn't enough ground for me, or there wasn't enough pages. And I know I did not want to um, impose on you you know, 1,500 essay, <laughs> page essay on karma, I, I, I had this relief happen because I could just let it go. I don't know. And I'm not going to know up here. Yet it is important to try to start to talk about it. So um, I'm, I'm coming from, in this talk right now, my main motivation is to encourage you around practice. That's always the role of a talk. And, um, and to see if we can, um, today in our sitting, kind of sit with something about karma that might come out of what you're hearing today. But please don't use it as a way to start getting um, confused and distracted up in your head. Uh, then I'm causing harm. So we're just going to take this and lightly offer it back into our bodies and see what happens. So um, one of the frameworks that I thought was really helpful, because we have a bunch of books that we're going to look at, um, and our wonderful librarians are very creatively offering to help um, put together books around karma 
and have them available in the library. And that we're also welcoming in different frameworks for looking at karma. And I'll explain what I mean by karma in a minute. But um, so this is one of the books that if you're interested in understanding it a little bit more historically as well as in more detail, um, Exploring Karma and Rebirth by Nagya Priya. It's a wonderful book and it's, it's very accessible. So in this book, he starts off with this, um, <clears throat> this uh, <clears throat> offering by this theologian, Paul Tillich. And um, he talks about this idea, Tillich, of what's called an unbroken myth, which is uh, one and a myth that is uh, believed to be literally true. And then um, takes that and says, you know, can we look at broken myths? So maybe at some point or another, this idea of karma was seen to be literally true, um, embedded in a particular context with a dis different cosmology. But now the myth is broken open, that perhaps historically, historical facts kind of have bore in on this notion of karma, but that it still has deep significance for us. It still holds a truth for us, a value and a meaning not in a literal sense. And then there's a, that, that idea was taken one bit further and there was an idea of what's called a myth broken open. <clears throat> and this feels really like Zen to me, that the, the meaning of a myth is something hidden. And if we want to uh, taste it, we must break it open. So this is um, the kind of request or offering for the practice period is how do we, like a koan, take this myth and break it open for ourselves. It's alive and real in a way that could be seen as helpful. <clears throat> so I'm going to just take a minute to talk about the idea of what karma is. So karma, the Sanskrit word for karma uh, comes from the word action. So that's action in Sanskrit is karma. And um, it's a way of trying to understand and come up with an idea of understanding how things work, especially in the realm of, of ethics. So uh, it's a very practical teaching. And uh, there are as I've come to understood it, that there are different uh, ways in which to look at cause and effect or conditions. So we talk a lot in our tradition and in Buddhism about dependent co-origination, which means just very basically all things arise in dependence upon conditions. When those things, those conditions cease, the thing itself will cease. So very obvious to all of us in our everyday life, going back to a plant analogy, if I see my plant and I forget about it and I don't water it, eventually it's going to wither. <laughs> That's a condition upon which it thrives or ceases. And the idea about karma is that it's a very specific application of the myriad arising of um, causes and conditions. And we're all, Karma is only looking at causes and conditions in the realm of uh, ethics or morality. 
And so it's, a, it's just a subset of dependent co-origination. And that's important because besides what we, uh, what we do, there are all of these other kinds of um, non-moral <laughs> factors impacting things. And when we look at karma, we're looking at it in a very specific way. So when we say um, our actions have impact, we're looking at, um, we're narrowing it down because karma, at least as Buddhists understand it, is focused on intention. So what we're looking at all the time is not just our actions of body, mind, and speech. And this is what we do all the time. This is what we're asked to do in practice. This is what we're asked to do in every moment of zazen. What is coming up in my mind? What is coming up? What are the ways that I'm speaking to myself about myself, about others, about the world? And what are, what are the behaviors that are happening right now? How am I acting from, um, from this current moment? It could be wiggling in your seat, <laughs> you know? Uh, could be anything. And uh, what, what the Buddha says is that the impact of your, of your karma or of your actions is the, the most powerful force in that is your intention. So this is so important for us that we are asked in this practice to look moment to moment to moment about intention because intention has the most impact, you know? And you know that, you can feel that. You know, if someone is giving you something and offering you something reluctantly, angrily, you know, <laughs> I don't want to do this, but I'm doing it, the, the gift feels totally different than when the intention comes from something that feels, um, uh, comes from an intention to really want to uh, offer support. Now, to just say, uh, intention, uh, the intention we, we um, have in every moment is usually mixed, you know? At least it is for me. <laughs> um, I can, if I look deeply enough, most of the time I'm operating both from, well, not both, sometimes I'm operating purely from greed, hate, delusion, from a sense of wanting to protect myself. Um, as I practice, um, and I, I think this grows, that there's also uh, another intention where I really don't want to cause harm or I want to do good. So I think we have to think about this in a very um, com- uh, complex way. So generally speaking, we could put things in two buckets, that there are skillful actions, skillful intentions, intentions grounded in generosity or compassion or wisdom, and then there's unskillful intentions, those grounded in craving, aversion, and ignorance. And I want to say that you know one of the really important things for ourselves and for our world right now, and I want to talk more about this, is that just because we choose to ignore our intentions, just because we choose to ignore the moral um, force in the universe, does not mean we're not subject to it. And so uh, ignorance is not an excuse for, for, um, 
for getting out of the idea of impact and harm. And I think uh, as we practice and as we uh, are, the world is asking us to wake up, we are, we are being kind of pulled out of our ignorance, you know? The image that kept coming to mind um, when I was a kid, it was all over the place. There was like this, this monkey, right? And he had, I was like, what is that? See no evil, hear no evil, do no evil. It's like, he's like this, you know? And in a way, you can say, uh, uh, before we start practicing or before we start, and it doesn't mean practice only in a Buddhist sense, but before we start listening and thinking about our morality, our ethics, you know, we are mostly uh, blown around by the, by the winds of our habit patterns. So every, if every action of, of body, speech, and mind creates a certain kind of condition, you know, and you can even say that on one level, they're not totally, we are just a result of our karmic habits, moment by moment by moment. And not just our karmic habits right now, when the time, 1961, when I was born, you know, but we inherit the karma of our ancestors as a, a, a white person in a country that has been ruled by white supremacy and, and violence. I inherit that karma, and I take responsibility for it. And so the karma is um, not just a personal karma. There's a wider karmic stream that is affecting us and we're in the middle of, and we take responsibility for it. So the image that really helps me um, to think about karma is the idea of, um, that comes out of the Yogacara school, which is this idea that um, every moment Every moment we're planting seeds. You know, this is a visual I like. Um, and that these seeds are um, going somewhere. We don't quite know where they go, but they're going somewhere all the time. And in this, in this um, school, there's this idea of this storehouse consciousness. And I think I resonate with this idea because I'm a, a therapist too, so it's a kind of an unconscious thing, that there is a way in which everything that... Um, we have ever, everything that is happening, all of our karma, we can never know. We actually can't know that there's this, um, these seeds that get planted underneath the surface and that um, we will never be able to see all of it. We'll never be able to clarify all of it. It will be operating on us endlessly. And so that is, makes us humble, you know, <laughs> that this is not a project by which we come into the Zen Center, we sit down, we practice earnestly, and then somehow we get up from our seat and we're purified and we go out and no harm comes to us and we cause no harm to anybody else. That's not the way. So what do we do about that since we are um, subject um, to these forces? to these seeds. Well, the idea in this teaching is that um, we take responsibility anyway. And how we take responsibility is by what's called the fruits. 
So we can't know the seeds, we can only need, know the fruits. And we can feel the fruits, and the fruits are in our bodies. And you can see this as you sit down to zazen, for a period of zazen, you sit down, you have an intention to just kind of be. <laughs> you, you, you have an intention to look, and then as you look, you start to feel things, right? Um, I feel tension. I feel pressure. I have a thought that this, this, this Zen form is just oppressive, you know? All sorts of things start to come up. Those are the fruits. We also see the fruits, of course, off the cushion. Somebody walks by you. Somebody says something that hurts you. And you have a reaction. That's a fruit. Now, the fruit doesn't, isn't necessarily bad. There's wholesome fruits, unwholesome fruits, right? So in a particular moment, somebody says something, commits an, uh, uh, a harm, and you see it, and you feel threatened by it. Maybe it's a mix of your own conditioning around uh, feeling threatened by a conflict. Or maybe it's an urge of the wholesome karma of justice coming up, stirring us up and, and saying, there's, there's energy here. We need to attend to it. That's a fruit, too. So um, all the time, this is, this is happening to us. And our job, what we're asked to do in this practice is to And this is why zazen is so important. This is why we have seven periods today of meditation, why we endlessly come back to the cushion, is because we are trying to cultivate a capacity, like a tree, to be with those fruits as they arise, you know? And in the beginning, the trees can be kind of a little bit um, uh, threatened by... um, too little water or too much wind. So we, uh, we have to um, be very careful and thoughtful and we take care of that tree until it can grow and then we can, we can um, work with the fruits and work with deeper fruits and harder fruits and more painful fruits in a way in which we don't get totally blown over. So uh, holding arising unwholesome karmic fruits in compassion and mindfulness and wisdom. That's the way we stop receding unwholesome karma. And we see we seed wholesome karma. So you can say, uh, in a way, we move from a way of, of just compulsively acting out what threatens us to um, freedom, really. Freedom to choose, freedom to not move in the midst of something, freedom in our bodies and mind to have the bravery to act in ways that we could not have imagined, you know? So, so as I was exploring this, I was thinking, this is all good and fine. <laughs> um, but how did I get to Zen Center when I wasn't practicing wholesome karma, like, how did I get here then? What was, what was this conditions that allowed me to get here? So this is, you know, the kind of blow mind-blowing kind of questions that um, make you go deeper. 
Because the other part that I feel more excited about is, is this idea of impact. So, you know, the way I hear that teaching, in a way it's wonderful, but it feels like so individual and so linear. Plant these seeds, they come up a little bit later in time. It's me just doing this, like a little seed machine, like a little machine in Zazen doing this, as if I'm doing this by myself. So then we complicate it, which is amazing. So there's this, so what we're doing is, as we're working with our own body and mind, the world is, and others are impinging on us. You know? We're doing this in a relational way. This is the way it works out. So you may think you're all well and good and feeling okay, and then you get up and you read something, or somebody looks at you in a particular way, and then all of a sudden, the, you know, all the fruits are there, right? Okay, so this is actually a really good thing. This is what we need. This is why we do practice in Sangha. We practice this stability, and then we, um, you know, I think in the beginning, you could feel like how we respond to impingement before we start practicing, or while we start practicing, while we're practicing. Something threatens us, it impinges us. We feel stress or tension or anger. Um, we, you know, start to try to do this again. We use our privilege, you know, the privilege born of a particular position of power to try to avoid uh, being impinged upon. Being asked to, to, to start to loosen up that sense of self. The practice period impinges on us. You know? <laughs> when are you going to show up? Write it down. Tell us about it. Are you here? You know? um, the Eno gently comes over and says, why aren't you in the Zendo? Are you okay? You know? So we do this in this Sangha. But But I see this as a wonderful thing, at least now. And it's not to say I don't have fear. It's not to say I don't feel threatened. I feel threatened all the time. I feel discomfort all the time in a particular way because I, as we, through the inevitable practice, the practice inevitably opens us up to life more. And it softens some of that um, a compulsive habit of body, mind, and speech in which we are only acting out in a way that solidifies self. So the process is we soften and we open, and as we open, we actually sometimes feel more discomfort. We can't ignore the wake-up calls, you know? The, we, we use... Um, our own understanding about suffering to see the suffering of others. You know, in this book he says, suffering is an imaginative act, which means that our capacity to suffer and to feel the suffering of others expands proportionately as we learn to live in the larger emotional world, one which is more connected to other beings. He says human beings, I say all beings, you know. We notice, we hear about if we open up our uh, senses, that there are sea turtles dying, you know, there are 
their bellies are filled with plastic. You know? We're hearing uh, the louding, the cries, trying to get the cotton out of our ears from this uh, history of structural racism in our country. Begging us, demanding that we wake up to this. And wake up to it not in an intellectual distance way or like I'm going to um, go on a march, that's so important. But how does that history live in our bodies? And it lives in our bodies in ways beyond and deeper than what we know. And we can't even figure out or know what those fruits are or that harm or that impact until we allow ourselves to open up to things that threaten us. How is, um, how are the calls around patriarchy waking us up? You know, and it almost feels, you know, maybe everybody, there's always a way to say this, but it's like uh, the, the volume's getting louder, guys, you know? Um, I was telling Michael a story that I had a, I had a, uh, the last time I cut my hair really short, I had somebody I was meeting with come to me and sit down across from me and say to me, you know, uh, I feel like you're going to be harsher with me now. Right? A whole history of conditioning around gender there. I know this person did not mean it to be harmful, but it, it was painful. It was, a, it was a signal, it was a, a communication. And of course, of course, you know, um, unless you, your head is so deeply buried in the sand and you, you're, you cannot not hear the cries of this earth. And, you know, one interesting thing about karma is that even if you actively, consciously choose to ignore all of those calls, you are actually not just causing harm in the world, but you're causing harm in your own body. You are shutting down your heart. You are shutting down connection. You are shutting down um, the depth of who we really want to be or who we are. So there's a lot of pain you have to endure to um, try to, to imagine that you're living outside of the, um, of the moral universe. So this is um, part of what we're practicing here is to um, develop this capacity to hold more of the stream of conditioning. And we say from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, this exists before we were born. It will exist after we leave. So there, that helps you to just not take it up as a project. <laughs> you think you're going to cross off your to-do list, you know? And it's okay. We can relax in that. And we don't even have to be... Um, you know, this was really a thought I had or a belief I had, and I think it was part of maybe a misunderstanding of the teachings as they were passed to me uh, as, as I was developing. 
which is, you know, I thought if I practice long enough that, um, and, and especially if I was going to sit in this seat, that I should have no more fear left. <laughs> My teachers didn't look like they had fear. They didn't talk about their fear. They seemed as if, you know, they were having um, an ability to live in this easeful way. I don't think that's the case, you know? Um, I am afraid. Every time I sit here, I am afraid. But the wonderful thing is that that fear that you could say is an unwholesome fruit of something that has many, many roots is also, um, I even say it's part of me helping starting to wake up, that, that that fear helped to try to support me in thinking, how am I going to do something to get outside of this fear? <clears throat> so we talk about all the time the, 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 the wholesome, skillful way to be with fear, to be with anger, to be with judgment, is, not, is to offer it something wholesome. Compassion, patience, kindness, clarity, maybe... What I need to do is speak. You know, that's the way I'm going to care for this fear. <clears throat> there was a great quote um, by Audre Lorde says, When I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. So we act even when we're, we have fear. And with our practice, we cultivate something that we can rest the fear within. <clears throat> and that's what we're doing. Uh, and you could say that as we practice, hopefully this won't have you running out the room, we actually suffer more in a particular way. <laughs> and the way we suffer more is not the suffering of, our, of being driven uh, around by our compulsions or by our unwholesome habits but rather uh, this tenderness and this sensitivity, this opening up that lets others in, and, and we feel more exquisitely the pain. And in feeling that, we are propelled from our wholesome karma to act. So there, there's one more piece I want to bring in, which is my favorite piece, always. Um, is... Um, is that, you know, in this idea of causality, of dependent co-origination, there's actually five realms of dependent co-origination. And I'm not going to talk about all, I'm going to only talk about one. So there are, um, <clears throat> there is physical dependent co-origination. Thing, things that arise, causes, and conditions based on physical, the physical nature of things. There are biolog there's another one that's biological, mental, then there's ethical and spiritual. And these are not unrelated, they're not separate. So if you can say, like, for example, something terrible happens because of this hurricane, you know, uh, somebody dies, you don't attribute that to an ethical um, condition. However, in one sense, no, in another sense, yes. The way we are treating this planet and... and Every time we throw out a plastic container or whatever we do, and we're all doing it, it does cause an impact on, on our, our Mother Earth, and it does in some way contribute. 
So part of the, what we have to do is begin to take responsibility, not just for our intention, but to begin to have an imagination about what is the consequence. Can I follow in, an, in a kind of creative way? What might be the consequence? How might this feel um, by, you know, by taking a particular action? So it asks a lot of us. This practice asks a lot of us. <laughs> um, but the good news is, and this is what goes back to this beautiful poem by um, Sutra by not Sutra poem by Ehe um, Koso Hotsugamon that we chant, is that in one of those realms is the Dharma realm of dependent co-origination. And so this is I love this about Zen. Um, I'm appreciating it more and more. This, that there is this recognition of um, other beings, literal beings, seen and unseen, who are supporting us. And, um, and how does he say it? He says, it is the undeserved, compassionate influence that somebody may exert on our life. We might not deserve that compassion, but we're getting it anyway. And that these beings are here waking us up also, having us um, call to us and exerting a positive influence. And we can, we can um, express in gratitude to them, thank you, and I'm hearing you. And I will, um, I will um, use that to further my vow. So... Uh, that I think that's really helpful because it helps us get out of an egoic, separate self, or just a kind of um, a, a, a kind of a human supremacy. You know that everything can be reduced down to a kind of rational formula. That there's again back to this mystery. How did we all come to be in this room at this moment together? Incredibly different experiences, trajectories, conditioning. So this is part of the forces helping us to wake up. And um, the other part I really love from an image perspective, it's again, it's swirling, it's dancing. We're all these streams interacting with each other. That feels kind of um, fun for me to think about, you know, that we're in this swirl. And that can help us relax and release this tension that we have to figure it out or we have to do it or we have to make sure we address harm as if we're alone in this. We're not alone in it. And the sangha can help us feel we're not alone in it. If we, um, as we gain stability and go out into other fields of folks doing beautiful work to undo harm in activist communities, religious communities, all kinds of communities, we can open up to them and rest in that and, and have them impinge on us and challenge us and open us up more. And we need that because we're always within our own paradigm. When I, um, last year when Seb and I did this sacred feminine workshop, one of the most, one of the biggest takeaways for me was how much I, and, I, and when I went to union last week, there was kind of a heartbreak 
because I grew up within Soto Zen. I was like a baby in Soto Zen. I was, I was like reparented and <laughs> I was an adolescent where all I did was hate my teachers and yell at them. <laughs> I grew up literally and spiritually in Soto Zen. And, and I, I love it. But I was also limited by my view of it. And I also realized that as, as lovely as this offering is, it also can cause harm. So, you know, what is it? I have to think about this. What is it to be a white woman in a Japanese garb? I, I, I have a deep feeling of respect for, for what I'm doing, but that might not feel that way to somebody. I also, in the Sacred Feminine, we had people from other um, communities, from Insight and Circle Sangha, and, and, I, and I got to feel like, oh, there's so many assumptions I have within my framework. You know, and I can't even see some of the ways that it causes harm because I'm so inside of it. So, and that's not to throw it away, but I, but that's part of the impingement that I appreciate. You know, and I appreciate what how we're doing that at Brooklyn Zen Center. And um, and uh, I do want to end with a poem. This is a kind of classic way to end a Dharma talk, but um, this one came to me this morning um, through my niece, and it was beautiful, and it felt like it captured the spirit of of this topic. So I'm going to read it to you. It's by Rilke, and you may know this one. Oh, you tender ones, walk now and then into the breath that blows coldly past. Upon your cheeks, let it tremble and part. Behind you, it will tremble together again. Oh, you blessed ones, you who are whole, you who seem the beginning of hearts, bows for the arrows and the arrows target, tear bright, your lips more eternally smile. Don't be afraid to suffer. Return that heaviness to the earth's own weight. Heavy are the mountains, heavy are the seas. Even the small trees you planted as children have long since become too heavy. You could not carry them now. But the winds, but the spaces. So you blessed ones, um, thank you for um, listening. Thank you for um, having a vow to sit today, to feel and open up to um, this beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, as well as this beginningless and endless um, grace. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.